Hello, my name is Morgan Gray, and welcome back to the Afrocentric Podcast. in church on Sunday morning Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning she'd say Billy don't you run so fast might fall on a piece of glass might be snakes there in that grass Grandma's hands We don't funk with racism. We don't funk with people who don't support the LGBTQ plus community. And baby, we damn sure don't funk with anybody who don't love a beautiful black queen, baby. You see this case? You don't let nobody act black and then go home and be white? It only takes a little bit of white brainwash to activate the cool chip in the average Negro. And a lot of white folk have demonstrated eloquently that they don't have no sense. And we are back with the Afrocentric podcast. And I have a very special guest today. We are doing, and for Black History Month, we will be doing Black History with Black historians. And for the topic of enslavement, I would like to welcome Mr. Xavier Fields. Xavier, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm blessed and highly tailored. Thank you. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself? All right. Well, hello, everyone. I am Xavier Sabell. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the History Department at Mississippi State University. That's beautiful. So, I'll first, before we get into this conversation, I do want to offer a trigger warning because we will be talking about enslavement. So, if you are not prepared for this conversation, we will be having some very hard, heavy-hitting topics. So, prepare yourself now. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right on into the first question and the first question is what was african what was the african slave trade in the middle passage and why are those terms so important all right well starting with the heavy hitters uh the african slave trade was just that it was the trade of african slaves uh, but in the context of black history for us we're talking about how enslaved africans came to america right but one of the important things to mention with that is that prior to European contact with Western Africans, slavery already existed, mm-hmm. right? It already existed in Western Africa, but it was totally different, right? We know for hundreds of years prior to European contact, there was a Saharan slave trade that was conducted by North African and Arabic states who not only were transporting slaves across 
the Sahara Desert and into many of these Muslim empires, but were also influencing West African culture and bringing with them religions like Islam, certain scientific and mathematic methods that we tend to think already existed in Africa, but it actually comes from that, that early Saharan slave trade. But as far as the European slave trade, the African slave trade was literally the transport of enslaved Africans from the west coast of Africa to European colonies in the Americas. And the hugest or the biggest part of that was the Middle Passage, which was the months-long journey of enslaved Africans in the bottom of ships from ports in Western Africa, primarily to the South America, West Indies region, and to a lesser degree, North America. Okay, so first I want to place a focus on the fact that the slave trade in America is chattel slavery, right? Yes. So chattel slavery is solely unique to America, and like to the Americas. Okay, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I follow, I follow. Okay, mm-hmm. so because of that, um, there's a difference between the original slavery or the traditional traditions of slavery mm-hmm. and chattel slavery. Would you like to expound on that? Yes. So there are huge differences between the slavery that existed in Africa and other nations prior to early European colonialism and what we get in the Americas and what we think of today as slavery. Mm-hmm. One of the main ones being race. So prior to European contact and enslavement and in Western Africa, there isn't this race-based idea of slavery that this particular race of people have to be slaves. There is this understanding, right, that rival uh, kingdoms or rival nations, you know, through warfare and different things can be enslaved. That's obvious, obviously a thing. But the main difference is that, number one, race really doesn't play a factor. I think another important thing to address is that there isn't this treatment or view of enslaved persons as chattel or as not human. Or property. Or as property. Yeah. Right? Uh, So there's this idea that a scholar by the name of Orlando Patterson coined called social death, which applies directly to American slavery because there's this understanding that enslaved Africans in the Western Hemisphere, right, who come across the Atlantic Ocean, experience this process of social death, where in American society, they weren't considered human. They were less than human. They were property. They were chattel. That is another huge difference. So let's get more in depth with with the idea of life living life on the middle passage just the trip between the slave shore or the yeah and then the triangular trade between the americas how how was life living on the boats life living on the boats was not fun at all So we have a lot of primary sources that come not only from enslaved persons themselves, but also enslavers who talk about this middle passage. And it was an arduous journey, right? We're talking about months in the belly of a ship. You have no light, no 
clean circulating air, you aren't taking showers or baths, you're being fed gruel and sort of very bland meals that pretty much keep you alive. It's only enough to keep you alive, mm-hmm. yes. And there's a lot that goes into it. One of the things that I find interesting about the Middle Passage is this idea, which Oludo Ekwiano talks about in his narrative, that a lot of these enslaved Africans aren't coming from the same nations. And oftentimes when enslavers would come to the western coast of Africa, they would stay there for months, just collecting as many slaves as they could to fill up the hold of the ship. So you have people who might be from uh, the Kingdom of the Congo. You might have people who are from further south on the western coast of Africa. South Africa, Nigeria, Niger, all that. And they're speaking different languages. They have different customs, religions. But yet they're thrown into the bottom of the ship and it's almost like a free-for-all trying to figure out where you are, get oriented to this new place. But at the same time, there are these new people who many enslaved Africans had never seen before. And one of the things that Equiano says in his narrative is that he was so fearful of these white men who had enslaved him and captured him that he thought they were going to eat him. You know, and I'm sure he wasn't the only one who had that fear. Uh, not because, you know, there's this understanding that uh, Europeans were eating each other, but they had never seen these type of people before. Mm-mm. And their first encounters with them were violent. Very. Very violent. Uh, but also, one of the things that you get in a lot of these early Middle Passage narratives from people like Equiano is the fact that things could get violent pretty fast. So... One of the the more famous incidents that happened on the Middle Passage is this thing called the Zong Massacre in 1781, um, which was essentially the mass killing of about 130 enslaved Africans who were enslaved and being transported on this British ship called the Zong. And it's sort of this more popular, well-known moment of a very common thing. Um, Oftentimes there would be sort of dire situations. So like with the Zong, there was this whole thing about the ship running low on provisions and they had to make hard decisions. So instead of, you know, the crew going without, they just threw some of the enslaved people overboard because they were dispensable. Like cargo. Like cargo, right? But also there were slave revolts on a lot of these enslaved ships. As they should have been. And so one of the things that would often happen on many of these slave ships if you get a hold of their plans is that there were these cannons that were strategically placed on the deck that would point directly towards the cargo hold where during the day they would bring up enslaved men enslaved women they would separate them right so the genders would never have been together on the ship but those enslaved men would have been right there in the middle of the ship where those cannons were pointing Because the idea was, if these slaves get ruly, we're just going to fire these cannons. So it, things could get really tricky. The true extent of the horrors of the Middle Passage came to light in a 1783 court trial over the slave ship Zong. The Zong left present-day Ghana in August of 1781, with 442 enslaved on board. After a two-month journey riddled with navigation errors, 62 enslaved people and seven crew members had perished without reaching their destination. Disease was spreading throughout the ship, 
and fresh water was running dangerously low. Captain Luke Collingwood was afraid of the financial cost of more deaths. Enslaved people that died of disease were not covered by the ship's insurance, but the enslaved who drowned were. Collingwood ordered approximately 130 enslaved people thrown overboard. He claimed it was necessary to do so to halt the spread of disease. At the trial between the Zong's owners and their insurance company, the owners argued that because it was legal to kill sick animals for the health of a ship, it was legal to treat enslaved people the same. The court agreed with the ship's owners, but the trial itself exposed the horrors aboard the Zong, and its story was republished by British abolitionists with the name of the ship redacted, meant to show that this tragedy could happen on any ship transporting enslaved people across the Middle Passage. 24 years after the Zong trial, the international slave trade was outlawed in both Great Britain and the United States. It would take England an additional 26 years and the U.S. another 58 years plus a civil war before the practice of slavery was officially abolished. Okay, so the whole tips, they got a question. And the question is, were we already here in America or did they bring us here to America? They brought us here. You sure? Positive. That's what the evidence, right? The historical sources, the ship manifests, the narratives tell us they brought us here. So we not the real Native Americans. I'm sure through people interacting with, with, with Native Americans and Europeans, I'm sure a lot of us are related to the original peoples of North America, but... I guess enslaved Africans or black people, I'm saying that with air quotes, mm -mm, weren't the original people in North America. Oh, okay. Well, if we're not the real people here, then where's the slave ships? Where the boats sit? So the boats, many of them are gone uh, because we're talking about ships that would have been floating 300-ish years ago. So, I mean, they, they don't exist, right? Wood rots. Um, but also many of those ships would have been retooled and repurposed for other things, whether it, it's war or just shipping actual cargo and goods. So the ships would have been gone. But we do have one slave ship. Because what, what the whole tips and I are failing to understand is, mm. is if the Titanic at the bottom of the sea. Okay. And the Mayflower is still here. And that's the little sailboat that the pilgrims and the Red Coast rode over here to get to America. Mm -hmm. So if they still here, you telling me ain't land slave ship here whatsoever. Well, first off, the Titanic sank in 1912. So, and it was also made out of metal. So there's that. Uh, metal and wood are two different things. But Guns are blazing. also, if I'm not mistaken, the Mayflower that is somewhere in Massachusetts is like a reproduction or something that people still go on and look at. I guess that's the one you're talking about. But as far as slave ships, we do have one uh, that was sank sometime in the late 1800s. It was called the Clotilda. And essentially, it was an illegal slave ship. So this is long after America had outlawed the transatlantic slave trade, right? So not the 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 exchange of slaves from Virginia to Mississippi, but the 
the, the Atlantic slave trade for America was long over. And this guy, I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but he wants slaves and he wants to make a huge profit off of them because there's this black market for fresh labor right in the deep south. So what he does is he gets this ship called the Clotilde and they sail it to Western Africa. They get a group of slaves, I'm forgetting the exact number, but they sail it back, I want to say to somewhere in the Gulf, like near Alabama. And what happens is... So they don't get caught in order to cover their tracks. They take the slaves off the ship and hide them in the swamp and they burn the ship down. Mm. And so this becomes a whisper and a rumor kind of around the Gulf Coast area. There's a place called Africatown somewhere in Alabama where the descendants of the Clotilde slaves actually live. Oh, did live. And so they would always say, you know oh yeah, my great-grandfather, my grandfather was brought here as a slave uh, on a ship called the Clotilde. But again, no one knew where the ship was. And it wasn't until sometime in the 20-teens where through scuba diving, they actually find the wreck of the Clotilde. So we do know that that slave ship existed. That's the one that we have have evidence of, to my knowledge. There might be more, but that's the one I know for a fact. We have evidence. Now, I know you lying to me because I'm going to tell you something. As the president of the whole Tips United, I'm gonna tell you right now, it was pyramids down there in that Grand Canyon, and what happened was is it's a land bridge that connects Egypt to the Grand Canyon, right? You following me? I'm listening. And they put the hieroglyphics all up in the in the Grand Canyon. That's why you can't go all through the Grand Canyon. But really, our ancestors was here first because the Moors they had their own little ships and they came over here first. Mm. Uh huh. Mm. That's history. Is it really? What What you talking about is his story. That's the white man's story. This his. I'm trying to tell you, we the real Anunnaki gods. If that's what you say, I mean, all I can go off of is the evidence and the records that I've seen. Mm. They'll tell you anything. They'll piss on you and tell you it's raining. My next question is, is who is responsible for the transatlantic slave trade and what were the causes of this slave trade? Okay, so who is responsible? I would say Europeans are responsible, right? Because they are the ones who conducted the transatlantic slave trade. No you tell me the Africans are not responsible for the slave trade. Responsible how? Well... According to us, again, Mm. the Africans went into Africa and they captured us and sold us to the white man. So initially, it's our fault. It's not initially our fault. Did that happen? Yes. To be sure, African nations did trade war captives to European enslavers. That did happen. I mean, that's just what it is. But as far as who created this infrastructure for transatlantic slavery, who created this idea of, of chattel and cash crop. It was white people. So that being said, nations like Spain, Portugal, Britain, France, and the Netherlands were the main ones who were carrying out this, this trade and enslaved Africans. And the reason was an economic profit. That's just what it was. They're creating these new colonies in places like Jamaica, Cuba, Virginia, Georgia, colonial America, folks. And they needed people to work the land and to create an economic profit. And slaves were the answer. 
Mm. That that's the reason why there was no other reason. There wasn't a need to go there other than get labor so they could take a profit. Tell me about who started. Who started the slave trade? Who? Okay, be specific. So if the, we blaming crackers, which cracker do I point my finger at? Ooh, ooh, wow. Uh, so it started with the Portuguese and the Spanish because they're the first Europeans to explore the coast of Western Africa and make it to the Americas. They were the first. Mm. So they were the first ones to do it. Of course, they have tons of success with that as well as their conquest of Native Americans in Central and South America. So when other European nations hear about it, like the Dutch and the French and the British, who are all competing against each other, by the way, they want in on that action. So they follow the Spanish lead and the Portuguese lead, and they create their own colonies and use enslaved labor. So you can't really say, I think, oh, this one nation is responsible when so many people had a hand in it. Uh, but for sure, those European nations I mentioned, they are the ones who did the slave trade. It was them. It was them. It was them over there, and they stealing. Stealing? Oh! Hey, don't, 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 past the point of enslavement now our ancestors are on american territory so if you could give me a brief understanding of the day-to-day -day life of an enslaved person so the day-to-day -day life of an enslaved person depended on a lot of different factors um, but a few that were important was the type of labor they were performing so you had three main systems of labor you had gang labor which was when slaves would work from dawn to dusk in groups during the same task for the entire day. You would have the task system where each slave is assigned a very specific job or duty to complete. And when they complete that duty, they have the rest of the day to do other tasks or to pretty much mind their own business. And then the last is skilled labor or urban slavery. So pretty much in major cities like New York and Philadelphia, you would have slaves who would work as carpenters, sailors, but also domestic workers like house servants and laundresses mm -hmm. because there aren't really a lot of big farms and plantations in the city. Mm -hmm. So they needed that labor to look something totally different. And all of these different labor systems had their pros and cons. So, for example, gang labor actually required a lot more supervision from an overseer. Uh, whereas task labor, because you were doing a specific task, you didn't really have a lot of, of oversight. It was definitely there, but you didn't really have, you know, this, this uh, overseer or white master constantly on your back. And slaves were able to take advantage of that. So a lot of your early slave revolts, um, like Denmark Vesey's Rebellion, uh, happened in places like South Carolina, where the task system was the norm because slaves were able to kind of subvert the system more because they were to themselves more often than not. Um, another important factor that shaped their life would have been location. So slavery in certain places like the Caribbean and the Deep South was far more dangerous and a lot more strenuous in the types of labor 
that would have been performed than slavery in somewhere like New York or Philadelphia, because again, you're talking about huge plantation complexes, working in extreme heat conditions versus working as a carpenter or as a maid all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but also certain diseases thrive in certain areas. So things like yellow fever and dysentery would have really been more common and more humid climates in the deep south and in the Caribbean. So slaves would have been exposed to diseases like that more often than someone who would have worked as a sailor on uh, a ship somewhere in Massachusetts. Let me ask you a question. I might have an answer. Do you think you would have survived as a slave? Would you have survived as a slave? Yeah. Probably not. Probably not. I'll do my best. Don't hate me for this, but I'm light-skinned. Yeah, because I would have been in the house. I would have been in the house. Probably because I would be in the house because I'm light-skinned. I can see myself light-skinned, so I could have been in the house. So I would have been looking out for my field. Flatting little cookies and lemonade. The field work, that, that ain't for me. First of all, my mouth is too smart. My mouth. My mouth is too, too, too sharp. I would have been the most obedient slave in the world. I probably would have been like a scary slave and just did what they asked. I clean, do whatever they asked. I can obey orders. <laughs> Comes down to it, like. I would have died running away. Like y'all running again. <laughs> Dumb. I'm trying to s- slip off and go through the underground railroad. If I had Harriet, I would wait till Harriet came back and I'm going with Harriet. If our ancestors survived it, like of course we can survive. You know, I have no clue. Um, I, I don't know. I really don't know how to answer that question. I think that based off of what we know about slavery, about how it played out, I don't think a lot of people in 2023 would be able to, to make it. Just because our mentality is different, we know freedom. A lot of our ancestors knew nothing outside of enslavement. One of the things that Frederick Douglass says in his narrative is that for most of his life, until he was like in his teens going into his early 20s, he didn't know that black people came from Africa. He just thought they were always slaves in America. And that's a very powerful thing, right? Especially when you have other people like Harriet Tubman saying that she could have freed tons of more slaves if they knew they were slaves. So I think we take for granted that many enslaved people, two, three, four generations in, knew nothing else but slavery. Whereas us in 2023, we know what it's like to be free, have our own house, be able to read, write, do do what we want to do. So it would definitely be an adjustment for sure. This this is a very insightful answer to a very ignorant-ass question. No, I try. That was so beautiful. Um... Is there anything else you wanted to talk about when we talked about the day-to-day life of enslaved people? Uh, One thing I would like to mention is that this whole idea that house slaves had it easy, I always want to caution people about that. Wait, hold on. We're going to get into it. So when we talk about the narratives between the house slave and the field slave or the house Negro or the field Negro, I think that the black community always always feels as if it was easier because they weren't outside doing the strenuous labor. And I think the point that you were getting to was probably like the closeness to and the proximity to whiteness that made it so dangerous as well as the, the outcome of it is all of us little light-skinned motherfuckers running around here. 
would you like to go more in depth? Sure. <laughs> so, the reason why I always say that we shouldn't automatically jump the gun and say that house slaves had it easier is because, let's say, for example, an enslaved woman working as a lady's maid or domestic servant, just because she's working in the house doesn't mean that she's not being harassed both by her her master, right, the man of the house, but and also her old lady, but also by her mistress, right. That that was a thing. This understanding that she's pretty much going to be on call twenty four seven. If the master or the mistress wakes up in the middle of the night and says, "I'm hungry," she has to get up and go get them food, right? If the master or the mistress needs her to dress them, bathe them, whatever, she has to do that work. But also, we know. That many of these domestic slaves who would have worked in the house, could they get some sort of advantages, better clothing, food? Sure, right? But also, they would have had to sacrifice a great deal. You don't really have time to raise your own kids or have your own family life when you were raising theirs. you're raising theirs, yes. taking care of their house and their family. So... I always tell people to be very cautious about saying that house slaves had it easier because it, when, when you think about individuals like Sally Hemings, mm. right? Hold on, tell them who Sally Hemings is. So Sally Hemings was not only Thomas Jefferson's enslaved mistress, but she was also his deceased wife's half-sister. Uh-huh, and she was black. And she, she was, was black. colored. She, she was, was a black. woman of color. Yeah. Um, you know, do we know if Sally and and Thomas Jefferson had a loving relationship or if it was consensual? We don't know, right? It, it, to my knowledge, from what I've seen, there isn't a definitive piece of evidence that says, you know, they were in love. Or I or, can't see it the way he thought about black people in the way that he wrote about black people. I mean, yeah, you know, that that is a thing, right? So we can kind of piece it together from that angle. We also know that Certain promises were made about children being freed, and some of them were, and some of them weren't. So that was a tricky process. And like, because they didn't get free until they went to like France, and then she left and went back to bring more of her kids over there. I don't know. Yeah, there was a thing about France. Her brother um, James, who was a chef, uh, I think he was the one who got liberated in France. Uh, but she has to come back to Monticello. And then there's a whole thing about her relationship with Thomas Jefferson and how the, the kids eventually do get free. But one of the interesting things about it is that Sally was younger than Thomas Jefferson's youngest daughter. Um, and that's something we often don't think she about. She was 14, wasn't she? Something like that. Uh, don't get me... Don't, don't We ain't got a quote. Allegedly, you know, allegedly. Allegedly. But I do know for a fact she was younger than his youngest daughter. The pitifies. You the know. Pitifies. So when we're talking about these relationships, again, that was her life. Uh, who knows how she felt about it, what her thought process was. But what we do know is that Thomas Jefferson enslaved his half-wife's younger sister, and her children, which were his children, mm -hmm. right? And that to him, that was normal and that was okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that's problematic. I don't care how you look at it. You mm -hmm. know, granted for his time, that would have been normal, right? We do know when he runs for president that certain uh, newspapers kind of throw shade at him and they say, oh, Thomas Jefferson has an enslaved mistress and half black kids. That was a thing. But a whole lot of these men with plantations um, had half 
They had their way. They had they way with both black men and enslaved women too. And I think mm-hmm. that needs to be emphasized as well. Yeah. So it up, Lord. Okay, let's shift the gears a little bit. So what did enslaved people do for fun? So enslaved people could do a range of things for fun. But one of the interesting things that I like to tell people is that enslaved people like to have a party. They like to have a good time. So in many places like Virginia, it was actually illegal for slaves to congregate in groups after certain hours or leave the plantation without a pass from their master. But one of the things that a scholar, Stephanie Camp, talks about in her book, Closing Freedom, is that there was this whole party culture amongst the enslaved. And she has this really interesting vignette where she talks about a formerly enslaved woman from Virginia named Nancy Williams, who is interviewed sometime after slavery. And she says that she joined other enslaved people and quote, courting couples who would slip away, right, to a cabin miles away from the plantation. And they would just party all night long before the sun came up and they had to redo the daily process. And this is a direct quote from Nancy in Camp's book. William said, quote, those days when me and the devil was running around in the depths of hell, right, end quote. So she was out here having a good time. She would talk about dances they would have, right, of course, talking about courting couples, so people who were probably naked, who were probably loving, right, again, they were living their lives and enjoying it. So that was a, a very real thing right and we often think about enslaved people's free time would have been spent going to church but there was a whole other side of the culture side of the culture especially like alcohol like they drank a lot Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that camp talks about in her book is that there was a drinking culture amongst the enslaved Um, and i think it's important for us to engage with stories like that because not only is it interesting because i feel as though we can see pieces of ourselves and people who lived hundreds of years ago, which is powerful. But more importantly, these people aren't one-dimensional. People yes. who, by design, right, society wanted them to just be these objects to be acted upon or told, do X, Y, Z, had a whole life and history and story that when we learn about it, I feel as though it undoes, un, it, yeah, un, undoes the undoes, humanity. It, it undoes the dehumanization yes. that was rendered to them by slavery. What's another example of what niggas did for fun back in the gap? That's the only one I can think of off the top well, of my head. Well, I, what I was thinking about definitely was like music and how much like singing was a part of the culture, right? Because that is uh like the idea of Pat Juba essentially like coming up with different ways to pass time during work um so when you were talking about the first form of slavery what did you say the first form of slavery was or you talking about the saharan slave trade Uh uh-uh you said it was three different types of slavery oh gang labor yes so like when they were working out in the fields doing repetitive labor day after day what they did was is they sang while they worked in order to maintain pace Mm. as well as to help the time pass by as well as um you know keep morality and their spirits up um as well as like putting together like singing shows and stuff which is also like 
taken and stolen from them by white people. Like a lot of people don't know, like the banjo was originally created by black people or like, uh, what is it? Bluegrass music, mm-hmm. folk music mm-hmm. originally started with like African people. Mm-hmm. And what I know there's a, there's a depiction of like these people in North Carolina who used to put on shows out in the front of their house every night or whatever. And these white people come down the road and listen to them. And what they did was eventually steal their act. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a large incorporation of like music, um, that really it makes me happy to hear about it now when i was talking about pat and juba that's um what we do with tambourines and stuff right come right, up right. with um different hand claps and different hand champs in order to um save the time dancing as well so i i i agree with you i think it's important to understand that niggas always made it the best way that they knew how to and they were going to find peace in a place where there was no peace. And I feel like that's a very comforting idea. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. In your opinion, Xavier, who are the top three most notable leaders and speakers of this time period? And what ideologies did they support? Okay. So I would have to say, just because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, kind of who were leaders prior to emancipation and civil rights. I think you can find leadership during the period of enslavement in a whole lot of different ways. But the first one I have to say was this individual by the name of Jupiter Hammond, who was actually born into slavery um, on Long Island, if I'm not mistaken, sometime in the 1700s. But he learns to read and write as an enslaved man. And he composed this poem Um, called An Evening Thought, Salvation by Christ with Penitential Cries. And he publishes this poem. And it's literally the first poem by an African-American in history that we have, like a record of, and and, and we can see it. But... One of the things that Hammond does is that he talks about the the black experience and he kind of talks about freedom in a very interesting way. So in 1786, he delivers um, this speech or this sermon called An Address to Negroes of the State of New York. And he pretty much says that, you know, quote, if we should ever go to heaven, we shall find nobody to reproach us for being black or for being slaves, end quote. So this idea that at the end of the day, yeah, we might live in this system or in this world where people are categorizing us, excuse me, based on race and our status as slaves, but, you know, there's this this other world or there's this higher power that doesn't look at people that way. Mm. So he's kind of doing this, this very interesting argumentative work where on one hand he's not necessarily saying slavery is bad you should free us but also he's calling out the inherent unchristianness right of slavery because he's saying that look in heaven this isn't a thing i would have to say another leader would have to be bishop richard allen who was the founder of or at least one of the founders of the ame church And he does a lot of interesting stuff throughout his career. So, for example, in 1787, he helps form the Free African Society, which was pretty much a mutual aid group that assisted fugitive escaped slaves from the South and new migrants coming into the city of Philadelphia. So 
he's really engaging in this early culture of free black people, particularly in the North, who were ardent abolitionists, who by virtue of being free people had certain economic and social privileges that allowed them to obtain an education, have their own independent businesses, but they used that position not to um, support the status quo or you know go along to get along, they are challenging early on the system of enslavement. And throughout his ministry as kind of the first leader of the AME Church, he operates his home as a station on the Underground Railroad, which would have been risky not only because was it illegal in, in many ways, but also as a black man doing that, he would have been extremely uh, in harm's way. Sidebar. Sidebar. You telling me the Underground Railroad wasn't a train station? No. Contrary to what Portia Williams told you, it is not an underground train system. You sure about that? Positive. I'm so positive. So Harriet wasn't no conductor? Not in that sense, no. She ain't put no coal in the back of no train or nothing? She wasn't putting any coal in any trains, not taking any tickets, none of that. So what's the slave, what's the Underground Railroad? It's this underground system. So the, kind of this covert or secretive system of escape for slaves during slavery. Okay. So that could be them going on certain pathways at night, hiding in certain people's houses, going by ship, all different ways to get to freedom. Oh, okay. Physically. But it sounds less uh, exciting. I think that's even more exciting than them being on a train, to be honest. I mean, I was hoping a nigga could get a free ride, but, you know, I guess if they had to walk for freedom. So, we were just talking about the black church, especially up north. So, I want to focus specifically on how much of a role the black church played in the liberation and emancipation of black enslaved people. And let me start off by saying that the church... So I'm assuming we're talking about Christianity was totally important, right? We can't say that it wasn't important because we have too many examples of it, right? We know that slaves had this thing in the South called the Invisible Institution, which is how scholars refer to it. So these um, hush harbors and kind of meetings, prayer meetings at night and in the woods where they would worship and, and congregate and fellowship. But we also know that, again, churches like uh, the AME Church, right, were actual institutions that existed during enslavement that was not only a reflection of free black society, but also enslaved society as well. Uh, we also get individuals like David Walker in 1829 and his appeal literally talking about the Bible and biblical text and theology as a way to refute slavery. We know that a lot of leaders of black liberation during this period, like Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner and Absalom Jones, were ministers, were heavily involved in the church, right? Who were actively, when we're talking about uh, Vesey and Turner, they were actively rebelling, literally leading rebellions against slavery. But also the abolitionist movement itself, as we kind of think about it in the 19th century, was a direct result of the moral reforms of the Second Great Awakening, so this big religious moment in American history. 
that kind of spurred a lot of different moral and social reform movements like abolitionism. Uh, however, uh, Christianity uh, as a religion was not the only method, right, that enslaved people used to kind of um, liberate themselves. Um, there's actually this very interesting criticism that happens. Uh, we don't hear about it a lot during enslavement of Christianity. Um, and it's briefly mentioned by Stephanie Camp in her book, Closer to Freedom, where she talks about how there are certain songs and attitudes amongst enslaved people that, you know, is kind of ambivalent or, or kind of side-eyeing religions. Excuse me, sweetie. God bless you. I'm gonna move up a little bit further with your dry self. <laughs> so there's this song uh, that she talks about called Run, Nigger, Run. And a line of the song literally says, some folks say the preacher won't steal. I caught two in my cornfield, right? So this idea that, you know, people are talking about religion as being this holier than thou thing, but they're just as bad as we are, mm. right? But we also have... Uh, as far as talking about religion outside of Christianity, a history of Islam uh, that we don't really hear a lot about of enslaved people and, and kind of people in the Americas prior to uh, the nation of Islam. So we know that there are certain individuals like Yarrow Mamut of Georgetown or Washington, D.C., who was enslaved, but when he becomes free in 1807, he lives the rest of his life as a successful entrepreneur and bank investor in kind of the Georgetown, Washington, D.C. area. And he literally continues his Islamic faith that he had prior to enslavement. He doesn't let it go. Um, there's records of people talking about how he, he, he could be seen um, praying five times a day, you know, doing these, these Islamic rituals, abstaining from eating pork and drinking. Who introduced him to Islam? That was his religion when he was in Western Africa. Huh. So he was already a Muslim prior to coming to America. But we also have another individual by the name of Omar Ibn Said, uh, who was a full Islamic scholar from the Futatoro people in Western Africa, uh, or present-day Senegal, and he's enslaved and transported to America in 1807. And while he's here in America, he actually writes a short autobiography, but also some Arabic language works on history and theology. And we have his Bible that he had during his life. And they're in the margins, there are these Arabic dedications to the prophet Muhammad and kind of these these moments of praise um, to Allah. And what's interesting about it is that he's writing it on this section of the Lord's Prayer. And so the person who scholars believe uh, was white um, gets a hold of, of this Bible or, or this piece of uh, religious text and they're, they just assume that he's writing the Lord's Prayer in Arabic, right? Because they themselves cannot read Arabic. But literally, he's writing about the Prophet Muhammad. He's talking about Allah. And what's interesting is that he had nomin nominally converted to Christianity. So pretty much officially, you know, everyone thought, oh, he's a Christian. You know, he's converted. You know, he, you know, he, he's a good slave, right? But literally, in his Bible, he's still 
writing about Islam. And that is such a thing that is so common, I feel like, not only in African-American culture, but something that was very common in Russian culture as well, where is this idea of being forced to convert to Christianity because the Russians were forced into Catholicism, but African-Americans were forced into Christianity, but still practicing their original faith under the guise of Christianity. And I think that is so freaking cool because, like, in Russia... You can see, like, they were pagans before they were forced into Christianity. So you can see how churches are built on top of specific shrines, like trees or specific, like, holy ground. Same thing under the guise of African-American. Because you can see that with the practice of hoodoo. Because they were Christians by day, but they were doing and pre and giving ancestral veneration at night so yeah i think that is so cool to be able to keep a tradition alive even when being forced and taught not to for sure um and in his autobiography where he's still you know again offering praise uh, to the prophet muhammad and, and extolling um allah he describes his life in his own country, and he has this really powerful quote where he says, Indeed, I wish to be seen again in our land called Africa, in a place of the sea called Gambia. End quote. And that speaks to me so much because what it shows is that not only is he carrying these pre-enslaved religious practices and traditions, but also he has a desire to return back to where he comes from. Right, that even though through the Middle Passage, through the process of enslavement, he hasn't given up hope. And for a system that by the time he makes it to the Americas in the 1800s is designed to break enslaved Black people down, to make them feel as though that they are less than human, that this is pretty much their only avenue, he's defiant. He's saying, no, I am still a person. I still have my pre enslavement beliefs and i want to go back to where i came from you say defiant i say resilient i think that is so cute yeah defiant resilient that's what a lot of enslaved people were and i think we take that for granted sometimes you know mm -hmm. because we think that oh well why didn't all of why, why didn't they all just rebel or why didn't they all just put up a fight well my ancestors had to crawl before we could walk Hello? Hello? You better ask somebody. I, I, I don't like that. I'm not my ancestors. I got these hands. Don't play with me. I, 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 I. And it goes back to the question I asked you. Do you think you would have been able to survive what they went through? And that's the dehumanization. That's what happens when you live in America for so long. The history is being taken away and erased. You feel like they were just ignorant. Mm. They knew nothing. Mm. What myths surrounding enslavement need to be addressed? So I know earlier we touched on briefly the myth of African selling Africans that people like to use when they want black people to get over slavery or they don't want to talk about it because they feel as though it's very inconvenient and makes certain groups look bad. Uh, I know we also talked about this myth of the house slave versus the field slave, uh, but I can't really think of another one. Do you have one? Um, I think that it really needs to be addressed about the Civil War because okay. the um, unseasoned, unmelanated tend to believe that the Civil War was started because um, of states' rights and they failed to believe or understand that the Civil War was the result of the people wanting to end slavery. Well, 
Uh, I can definitely see how you would get that a lot in Mississippi. Uh, that's one of the things that I really had to adjust to moving down here is that people are still caught up in, in, in this idea that it was about states' rights, which, of course, I heard growing up in Virginia, but not as much. Oh, they romanticized the Civil War down here. So to that question, and or to that myth, I should say, I would encourage all of those people who feel as though slavery was about, well, excuse me, the Civil War was not about slavery, but it was about states' rights, uh, to look at the cornerstone of the Confederacy speech. Confederacy speech uh, by Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy, where he says literally that slavery and white supremacy were the cornerstone of the Confederacy. They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand for these people. That's why the Confederacy was 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 created, because they felt as though the system of slavery was under attack. So if you want to say it was about states' rights, okay, states' rights to what? Have slaves. That's just what it is in the discussion. There is no war of northern aggression. There is no none of that. It was about slavery. That's just what it was. And I think people have to stop trying to romanticize historical figures. I don't care who it is. Especially the South. Oh, God, all these damn Confederate statues. Whether you want to romanticize the Confederacy. You know, you pick your historical figure. People did some really grimy stuff. Mm -hmm. and They're still doing it, too. And they're still doing it, right? You know, there's a whole conversation to be had about why we get those Confederate statues in the first place. It's not just to honor the Confederate dead. A lot of this has to do with white supremacy mm -hmm. uh, because there's no sort of coincidence or... Oh, well, that's just convenient that a lot of these monuments are being placed in a lot of towns and cities in the South during a time where black rights that were supposed to be secured by the Civil War, right, supposed to be set up during Reconstruction are being done away with and lynchings and burnings are starting to happen throughout the South. There is no coincidence that those two things are happening at the same time. Look, I thought of another one real quick. I think niggas need to stop believing that Abraham Lincoln truly loved the slaves and that's why he emancipated them. That's a good one. That's another good one. Um, it, it really was, in my opinion, for him, from what I've a read. A military tactic. It was a military tactic is what it was. You know, it was very much a war aim. There wasn't any sort of true... Recognition, I guess you could say, of black people being equal to whites. You know, there's that whole quote he has about not wanting a black man to marry his daughter. But I like the retort that James Baldwin gave to that years, like years, years, years after uh, Abraham Lincoln said that, because James Baldwin says pretty much, what makes you think I would want to marry your daughter knowing what I know about your family? Period. You know, pretty much throwing shade on this idea that just because... Uh, you're emancipating black people or just because black people are going to have the same rights and treatment under the law, right? Let, let's forget about trying to change people's opinions about race, but just that this basic legal protection of black people as citizens is somehow going to equate to interracial marriage or all of these other things. It, it, you know, it's just disgusting. 
and disheartening. Did you know that there were two efforts to keep slavery? Yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that the uh, Republicans did not want to keep slavery. Yeah, yeah. There was the Crittenden Compromise and the Corwin Amendment. Yeah. And we are going to talk about the Crittenden Compromise first. Now, in 1860, after an unsuccessful attempt to prevent civil war, Senator John J. Crittenden from Kentucky proposed six constitutional amendments and four resolutions. Yes, he was being extra. He was being real extra, okay? But he was like, you know what? It's my last year in Congress. I can afford to be extra. Give me this, right? Right. Now, the compromise would have permanently legalized slavery in the United States Constitution and make it unconstitutional for future Congresses to end slavery. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's look at the amendments and the, what was it, the resolutions. Yeah. Now, the First Amendment said that states north of Missouri could not have slavery, but states south of Missouri could. Congress could not abolish slavery in places under its jurisdictions, like a military post. Okay, so if a military post was in a slave state, it could not abolish slavery, okay? It could not abolish slavery in the District of Columbia as long as it existed in the adjoining state of Virginia and Maryland and without the consent of the citizens of D.C. Yes. Congress could not prohibit or interfere with interstate slave trade. Congress would provide full compensation to owners of rescued fugitive slaves. No future amendment of the Constitution would change these amendments or authorize or empower Congress to interfere with slavery within any slave state. And that's the important one. No future amendment of the Constitution could change these amendments or authorize or empower Congress to interfere with slavery within any slave state. Y'all can never change your mind. Now, for the for the Republicans, this was a no-go. Yeah, um, they didn't want slavery. They didn't like slavery. They were like, are you out of your mind? Are you insane? Okay. Uh, Lincoln, um, even though he ran on, like, no expansion of slavery, uh, he gestured toward a possible constitutional amendment pre 
protecting slavery where it currently existed, right? Where it already existed. But when it came to expanding slavery, he was like, absolutely not. We're not even negotiating this. No. And the Southerners were like, I'm sorry. No, no, no. But it did not stop the compromise from being introduced at the Peace Conference of 1861. Okay. Now, the Peace Conference of 1861 was a last ditch effort. Okay. They're like, please don't leave us. Please don't leave us. Please don't leave us. It was one of those things. Okay. It was a no go. The compromise failed, yeah. And um, can you guess why it failed? Can you? It came down to slavery, yeah. It came down to whether or not slavery was going to be allowed throughout all the Western territories and future states. I know. A lot of people from the South keep saying it's about states' rights. Say it with me. The states' rights to keep slaves. I just wanted to get this answer out of you before we concluded this episode. Mm -hmm. So tell me, how do you feel about the following statement? Okay. The transatlantic slave trade is one of the greatest atrocities in history. It was. Because we're talking about millions of people, right? Not hundreds, not thousands. We have the data and the numbers that show between 1,500 and 1,800, 2 million Africans were transported in the Middle Passage. And that if you extend that to 1875, it's 12.5 million people, right? That... In those few hundred years, millions of people were stripped of their identity, thrown into this system designed to make them subhuman. Many of them during this period of enslavement were outright murdered. We know that two million deaths occurred during the Middle Passage. That's not an exaggeration. That's a real number. But through all of that happened, then to arrive in America, to be beaten, to be worked, to be told your name is no longer XYZ, it's Mary, Joe, whatever, to be given this new religion, to be told that you cannot go here or there without my say-so, to at times have no control over your body to have no control over who you sleep with in some cases to have your family separated to pretty much have your life be irrelevant to the equation for lack of a better phrase i mean that's a that's atrocious i don't care how you try to frame it i don't care how you try to talk about it because even though 
slavery was an economic institution. Absolutely was. I 100% agree with that. The social side of it that had to support that economic institution was disgusting. It's disgusting that people had to come up with these very devious ways of handling slave people, enslaved people. You know, I, I think about the Barbados Slave Code from, I think, 1661, where they pretty much said that it was okay to cut off enslaved people's noses and burn them in the face. You know, I think about things like Thomas Thistlewood and his diary of his, of his time as a overseer on a Jamaican plantation and how he did this thing called Derby's Dose. I don't want to get your podcast shut go on, down. Go on, do it. But Derby's Dose was when he would whip a slave, whip him terrible, and he would then take lime, juice, salt, pepper, and rub it in their wounds. They create keloids. It gets better. And I'm saying better in air quotes. He would then get a slave named Derby to defecate in that person's mouth, and he would gag that enslaved person. Things like that happen. And for and it frustrates me sometimes for people to say, oh, just get over it. Oh, that was hundreds of years ago. But we know that even after, because if we take out Barbados, the Caribbean, South America, if we just talk about what happened in the United States, okay? Even after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, after the Civil War was won by the Union, and black people were given all of these rights, those rights were taken away. And we had to fight for another hundred years. Mm -hmm. If there's no way to say that slavery isn't an atrocity, there's no way to say that we are beyond that or we don't have to talk about it because we are still living with it Till this day in so many ways. We're still trying to understand it. And the truth of the matter is, is we'll never understand the fullness of it. Because of the extent they went to cover it up and hide it. Because they knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And they talked about it in real time. You know, you have people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson literally saying, you know, this is so bad. This is so terrible. But yet they do nothing about it. Some prisons in the South used to be literal slave plantations. In 1901, Mississippi purchased Parchment Farm to put incarcerated people to work, and it operated almost the same way a slave plantation would. Prisoners worked 10 hours a day, six days a week, picking cotton and plowing fields. They slept in long, single-story buildings called cages. The superintendent operated like a slave owner, and the white guards functioned like overseers. Parchment isn't the only plantation-turned-prison. There's also Angola in Louisiana the largest maximum security prison in the US and the Cummins unit in Arkansas. So how was any of this legal? Because even though the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, it made an exception for people convicted of crimes. They could still be forced into manual labor. So the idea was, if you could get black people in prison, you could put them back to work on plantations. So that's when the black codes were introduced, where black people could get arrested for the most banal things, like being too close to a white person in public, hanging out after dark, or walking without a purpose. 
In some states, stealing a pig was punishable by up to five years in prison. This was as much about devising new ways to enforce a white racial hierarchy as it was about making money. You see, after the Civil War, the South's economy, which depended on slave labor, fell apart. But once parchment was up and running, the state made about five million in today's dollars within two years, and it continued to be run like a slave plantation until the 1970s. That history of state violence continues to this day. Water don't even run, man. Look at these walls. Look at all that mold and all these spots. Look at that window, man. You can't even get no air in the window, man. Parchment has recorded dozens of deaths in the last few years and is plagued by dismal conditions and violence. As for the black codes, they're still all around us, sitting in a coffee shop while black, driving while black, sleeping while black. Those are all legacies of criminalizing black people for slave labor. Shout out to the slaves. Yeah, shout out to the slaves. You feel me? Shout out to Harriet Tubman. That shout was out to the real niggas. Shout out to the real niggas. And shout out again to all those people who hate my guts. Y'all are doing a justice and an effort to the world. Keep breaking these men down one at a time. You are obsessed and sick. And we are back with the big black shout out, the blackest shout out in the world. The big black shout out is an opportunity to help circulate dollars back into the black community, as well as to help black people find black owned hidden gems. So Xavier, who would you like to shout out today? Okay, so first I'd like to shout out one of my friends from undergrad. He's actually my line brother, Tyquan Benjamin. He has this really cool graphic design art business that he does where he creates posters and different types of tables and real cool art and you can get his business on instagram at childhood underscore nostalgics you gonna have to spell that oh man spelling so that's at childhood c-h-i-l-d-h-o-o-d underscore nostalgics n-o-s-t-a-l-g-i-c-s thank you because that was a big word for elmo it was a big word for me to say that fast well shout out to taekwondo Love that for that young man and that baby. He making art and stuff. We love that for the black creators. So shout out to you. Xavier, who is the next black-owned creator that you would like to shout out? Next, I'd like to shout out another one of my friends and line brothers from undergrad, Khalil Jordan. He has this really great... Uh, I guess you could call it rug business where he makes oh he makes rugs he makes rugs but they're like really dope that's cool uh, and they're really intricate with how he does it um so you can get his business what type of rugs does he make so he makes different ones where pretty much if you send him a picture of like uh, i don't know powerpuff girls or scissor he does the embroidery and stuff hot sauce love it you want it, he's got it. This is so nice. I love that. Where is he located? Uh, so you can catch his business on Instagram at kclout. So that's K-C-L-O-U-T-T dot customs dot L-L-C. And he's based out of Atlanta. That's real cool. You know, the Atlanta culture is going up with them carpets and rugs. That's what black people doing in their free time. And I it, love that. I love that. Whatever keep you out the street and out of gang banging. Love it for my nigga. So shout out to him. Do you have another black creator you would like to shout out? Oh, 
and that's fine by me because it's black history month so if you have a black business or someone you know has a black business make sure that you are emailing me at the afrocentric podcast that's afrocentric podcast at gmail.com you think Harriet Tubman was walking around with a fucking nice shiny fucking dress on with a fucking crown on her head when she was taking slaves to freedom? Xavier, I just want to take this time and thank you so much for having this conversation with me about my ancestors and your ancestors and how we got here on this side of that rock. Thank you for inviting me. I really, really appreciate it. I was actually intimidated and nervous about so there's no reason to be intimidated or nervous. I'm a man eater, but I only eat men on Wednesdays and Thursdays. What are Thursdays? I'm on a diet, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. There we go. Mm-hmm. So if is there anything that you want to say to the black community before I let you go? Other than Happy Black History Month, um, even though that's real basic, I guess one thing I would say is keep fighting. You know, this process of gaining our rights, of gaining recognition, we can't give up. You know, we see a lot of things in the media and in the news about black men and women being killed daily and the government and society really not caring about it. But we have to keep fighting. So that's really it is just keep pushing. Yeah, you got to put your gloves on because we fighting the devil in his evil army. Amen. Well, look, I want to thank you as well as my listeners so much for choosing to be Afrocentric today. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you guys so much for choosing to be Afrocentric today. Please remember that Black Lives Matter. Make sure to listen and protect Black women. And the only thing that you must do in this lifetime is be Black and die. And here... At the Afrocentric Podcast, we're just civilized people having civilized conversations. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All Lives Matter, 1800s edition. Just because I own slaves doesn't mean I'm racist. I don't even see color. You're racist for being slaves. My closest friends are house Negroes. Look, I didn't ask to have all this cotton. It's not my fault that the cotton is profitable. Don't blame me for something my grandfather's grandfather planted. And if cotton is so bad, why are you wearing it? Don't act innocent. This is the fabric of all our lives. You know what really just uh, shines my shoes? You can give birth to a light-skinned child and everything is fine. But I put on a little bit of blackface. Oh no, that's racist. How? Blackface comes off. Your white face is forever. This is not the dream that Abraham Lincoln gave speeches for. Racism ended with the three-fifths compromise. Everyone is equal. We have a black overseer. Slavery is a choice. If you didn't want to get locked up, you should have kept running after we captured your wife. I mean, like, come on, make good decisions or face the consequences. Blacks are 99% more likely to try and escape north. That's not racist. That's just a fact. When will you people realize underground railroads only create racial divide? And why? We're all red on the inside. Look at your brother's body. 
Rope doesn't make his neck any different than mine. My accountant hung himself, so we're all struggling with something. Don't judge a book that you're not allowed to read. My house is like two stories tops. The real masters live in mansions. I'm a slave like you. Only through love and working together can we get our emancipation. Free the people? How about we the people? Black Lives Matter? How about all lives matter? <laughs>